Now we're coming into episode two of our terroir episode. If you uh, need catching up, feel free to go back and listen to episode one, but we're just going to dive right in. Let's go. So, okay. I think probably a lot of people are like, yeah, but, but what about water? You guys mentioned water. So what about water? Well, we talked about this in the last episode. We talked about, uh, take for example, nada mm-hmm. and the, the, the incredible variation of water that exists all within this very small, you know, narrow 24 kilometer patch of land. But even within that, even considering that it's, it is being influenced by the, you know, the, the Rocco mountain range. And even considering that even for that, you know, even for Japan, there, there's a consistency of hardness. Uh, that's, that's Japanese hardness, you know, throughout that region, but the water compositions are still, you know, they're very different. And one, I guess, one word I've been hearing recently, which attempts to tackle this, you know, this variation, is people talk about micro terroirs. <laughs> now, now, you know, we'll try and keep this polite, but there's another word for micro terroir, which you could cut out all the jargon, and you just say it's differences in water. It's different. Yeah, it's different. That's a, that's all. That's just yeah, that's it's, it. just, it's different. I have an even better one. So uh, Iwakuni City uh, has five sake breweries. Um, three of them are actually in the city center. One of them is uh, Murashige Shuzo. Murashige Shuzo has uh, two water sources, <laughs> and they are approximately one hundred meters apart, and, and they're completely different. The, the water, the, the, the one closest to the brewery is really soft water on par with Saijo. And the one like a three minute walk uh, to the north, approximately about the same as Fushimi. And it's just, what is that? Like, is that which terroir does, does this single sake brewery fall under? If, if, yeah. if the water is a determinative effect. And of course, like Andy said, you know, the water is going to have an influence on all kinds of things that happen during fermentation, which will then influence the sake brewing. But does the water determine that? Does it say what happens? Of course not. No, you know, and, and we, I'd just like to point out, we, we don't need wine experts telling us that water makes a difference in the sake. Thank you. We know that there was a brewery. It's interesting you said that. There was also a brewery in the the, the town uh, I I worked at my first brewery. It was over the other side of the mountain range, but it's it's banded in the same town, and they had two water supplies as well. And I was told one was hard and one was soft, and they actually sometimes blend them, and you know they yeah. make different sake from different ones and stuff. Um, of course, it makes a difference to the sake. We're, we're still again forgetting this is what I highlighted back at the, the first point. The, the question is, is it is the influence so much that brewers cannot control the expression that it has? And the answer is no. Brewers have you know a whole arsenal of techniques at their disposal which they can make adjustments for that. That's what sake brewing is. So if you know, if you're dealing with, with a, a sake that would that would run off and rigorously ferment because you're using, say, you know, mineral-rich hard water, then there's so many different things that you can do. 
Koji is is really the engine of of sake brewing. It's the great, you know, how how can I put this in, into words? It controls everything really. It's essential for the the brewer to to express their creativity. They can do so much with koji, and that is a process that they don't have at their disposal in the wine world. And actually, one of the biggest differences that's very rarely talked about between the two beverages is that it's almost unquantifiable the effect that koji has on on brewing you know how the brewers make the koji how the master brewer usually makes the koji is really where they they show their personality they really put their signature in it and they can make so many adjustments and um, not just through the koji there are other factors as well like yeast and obviously very importantly temperature control but like we've said you can get different styles of sake from all across Japan, regardless of the water, because of the, the fantastic, intricate brewing process that's available. Which I think is probably an excellent segue into tradition, right? Because if, if we're talking about how the brewers can sort of adapt to and adjust for all, all of these different influences, and would that then say that like different areas have developed specific traditions to deal with these or what, what, how, how does that play into it, do you think? Because this is where it starts to, to get to the point where it's kind of the loosest definition. You can kind of play with the definition quite, quite a lot, but it, it's probably the one where if you were going to say, look, just accept that there's terroir and sake, out of those four, all day long you would pick tradition. It doesn't apply to sake though, and, and here, here's why. Of course, traditionally, you've got things like toji guilds and you know certain regions had different brewing techniques that they developed, but we'll forget the fact that they, they dispersed across Japan. And um, you know, people in Tamba were sent to Nada, and then from you know from, from Nada they, they then spread out. People from you know the Brewers Association in Shimani, for example, were originally influenced by Bichu Toji from Okayama. So they all kind of spread out organically, really. So the traditional guild system and talking about terroir is, is a bit of a non-starter. But sake traditionally had much stronger regionality. And so many people mix those two things up, terroir and regionality. Regionality is actually probably one of my favourite things to study about in, in sake brewing, although it really is losing its meaning. But if you look at futsushu, even today, you can still see regionality, but it is not the climate in that sense. It's typically, in fact, it's, it's the perfect example of how brewers adapt. For example, both the breweries I've worked have both been coastal regions, and they're also in the Seto Inland Sea. So, there, there's an abundance of delicious seafood and, and and historically that would have been much more important as well because foodstuffs were not getting moved around as, as freely as, as they are today where you can go into a convenience store and pick up stuff from all different parts of Japan. So for example where I worked in uh, the coastal region of Okayama the, the, the sake was a, traditionally a sweeter style and you can still see that in the, or you can still taste that in the futsushu of the region. All the breweries that make, still make futsushu, it tends to be on the, the sweeter side. And that paired well with the local cuisine. So 
they they adapted to the local cuisine. It's got nothing to do with the environment. It's not nothing to do with hard water or soft water or aspect of the sun on the rice fields or you know which way the, the water is coming from. It's got nothing to do with that at all. It's a brewer's decision to make sake like that that paired well with the food. And they, so and they, it inspires me to, to just say that, that that's a market concept. It was it was driven by market forces because people want that's the the sake that people bought so that's the, the sake that they made. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, re regionality is is actually a very interesting part of sake, the sake industry. Um, unfortunately, it, it seems to kind of its importance seems to to dwindle every year, mostly because you know the traditional guilds are. They're, they're a shadow of their former self. You, mean, you used to have very specific techniques coming out of the guilds. For example, you know, I wouldn't profess to be an expert on, uh, on on any of the other guilds, but I do know a little bit about the Tamba Guild because, you know, that's the region that I'm from, and they they have a number of specific techniques that were that were unique to them. For example, pitching yeast when the moto is at a very cold temperature, and um, that that's a Tamba tree. Aruten, you know, Kimoto with Aruten, that is the, the orthodox method that they would made, um, you know, back in the, the Edo and Meiji period. As we've talked about a few times on this podcast, Hangiri, um, these these kind of low basins, I guess you would call them, uh, for using Kimoto, the Mototsuri method of Kimoto is a Tambatoji method. But nowadays, modern breweries, you see a lot of Kuramoto Toji um, or Toji that are full-time employed and they're kind of making sake that the the kuramoto is telling them to make because it's what people are asking for you know these are trends that are happening in in the marketplace and certainly in the case of kuramoto toji they tend to have you know learned what what they know by emulating people that they like you know other sake that they like in the industry you just need to look at people talk about the juyondai style you know how many people there's one in Yamaguchi where you are yes. that that emulate the Juyondai style. So that's two different parts of Japan that have distinct and I mean really distinct flavor and aroma profiles purely because of the style of sake they're making. And it's one brewery emulating another. And that happened a lot with that's just one example with Juyondai. Absolutely. I, and I, I think a lot of things about sort of what you just said, like the falling away of tradition is again, another sort of influence that say market, I guess market trends has, is having, right? Because there's this overall trend and, and I, uh, I can see it in um, talking to sake breweries locally. Like they, they, they have numbers to show, like, you know, we used to brew our sake to be like a, a minus five, SMV, right? And and now it's a zero uh, because just people don't go in for as sweet a sake as they used to go for. So, you know, we're brewing it drier. And, yeah, um, I, I have some statistics somewhere from, uh, weirdly, in a book about Okayama sake. And I think we're talking the 70s and 80s. Yeah. And the SMV values are off the charts. I mean, they're way in the minus. You know, com compared to nowadays, it's, yeah. It's it's incredible, and then obviously they had there was a there was a dry stage that happened again, um you know Tanri Karakuchi, mm -hmm. which would have kind of shoehorn, uh, which would, would sit right in the middle of 
you know, this, this, you know, the, the Juyondai era where people started making a swing back to, to, to sweeter style. So it, it kind of yo-yos really, um, you know, through the decades, but um, important to, to point out, obviously that's Brewer's own preferences. It's not influenced by, you know, soil or climate or, or terrain. Right. And of course, uh, and they're doing all of that through the process. Again, we, we have to just keep coming back to this point that sake is process driven and that the, the natural influences are real, but all of them can be and are addressed through the process. Yeah, I think and, just the last point on that, John Gauntner did, uh, John Gauntner, sorry, did a fantastic presentation years ago now. I think it would maybe be about 10 years ago now on Saki Terroir. And he really did what we're doing now is kind of went through the, the, the possibilities systematically. And his conclusion was that if we're going to have Terroir and Saki, then perhaps this was just a suggestion that the, the, the closest equivalent, not same thing, really specifically said equivalent, would be, you know, a, a combination of brewers and the environment, and that's the Kura environment inside the Kura. Now, of course, that isn't terroir, and that doesn't conform to this tradition aspect. And of course, you go you go to a ne the next door brewery, and you've got a completely different environment. So it's not something, you know, that you're going to have any sensible conversation about it being a viable terroir in, in sake. But it, it really hits the nail on the head, really, that the man-made environment in which a sake is produced has such an influence on, on the taste. So if we want to kind of, you know, bend that definition further and say that, you know, that brewery environment could come, come under the banner of tradition, then, then yeah, I, I guess you've got something. But we're, we're kind of really clutching at straws. Right, so then I guess... I think it's pretty clear that having those four traits that, that we discussed, the climate, soil, terrain, and tradition, none of them are particularly determinative. Now, if, if, if that sort of helps us put that idea to rest, that, that terroir is not a major influencing or, or a major determining factor of sake, then, then like we have to sort of question, what about all of these GIs? And GIs are just they're they're popping up geez like what are we up to like 12 now for sake like it's, it's some ridiculous number like they keep coming up new ones and i and I, I say that with all due respect to my my friends in hagi who just recently got one congratulations and all that but it's like okay is this an attempt to sort of legislate terroir like yeah i, I the whole gi thing I'm slightly nervous about the whole thing because I, I don't want to see the industry shackled the way that old world wines are and specifically by that system. You know, if, if you look at, you know, wines in France, again, apologies to the wine people out there. I'm not an expert on it, but I do know enough that, you know, in, in certain regions, they are only allowed to use certain grape varieties. Otherwise, their, their wine is it's off the, the the spectrum isn't it it's, it's it's something almost different it gets you know completely deregulated so 
in this region of Burgundy, then they're, they're going to use these grapes. In this region of Bordeaux, they can only use these grapes. And by making GIs, I mean, luckily, people don't have to, to enter into them. But if it catches on, I don't think it will, by the way, but if it catches on and consumers start to really take up on it, all we've done is just limited what the raw ingredients that brewers are allowed to use. We've limited their creativity because that's all these GIs are in the sake industry. They're, if you look at all of them, like I've lost count as well. I think maybe about 10, I stopped checking where they're from. There's one in Harima as well, which is where, where I live, or very close to where I live. But they're all pretty much the same thing, aren't they? They must be used with local water, must be used with local rice. Again, that's problematic. We talked about that before, yeah. you know. That, that actually is, is one of the issues that I wanted to bring up. Like Yamanashi, the GI for Yamanashi doesn't mention rice because they, they just can't grow enough rice. Like there's there's not enough rice growing area in Yamanashi. So like even that just flies out the window. Yeah, I think they concentrate on water for Yamanashi. Yeah, it's all about the water. Yeah, and some of them are concentrating on yeast, which uh, again, that's that's kind of, I mean, not that not that I'm hearing much from the terroir bandwagon about yeasts, but the one I looked at, I can't remember which region it was, but the, the rice is actually just a derivative of Kyokai number nine, as so many are. The, the yeast so, is, is a derivative of Kyokai number nine, yeah. Yeah, so it's not really anything you could say that's got any serious credentials to be something from the land. Um, although that that is the route that some of them seem to be going down is that it must be with local water, local rice, and this local yeast that they've you know they've got from somewhere. So the, it it just seems really misguided to to be so mm, free and to be so insistent on like to to celebrate this idea is like oh yes we have this regional region that has been identified with a geographical indication and, and all that, that that is an expression of the, the local terroir or something and, and it it's just a it's just a it's a, it's a legally recognized marketing ploy is all i can see it as personally yeah there's there's one very interesting comment we've never mentioned john gauntner on this this podcast before i, I don't know why but uh, and we're going to mention him twice tonight but he, he made a very, very important comment. I don't know if you subscribe to Saki ah, Industry yeah, News. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do. And I do. it seems like every month there's a new GI and John will do the comments. And I can't remember. It was maybe about the ninth or 10th. He must have sort of run out of things to things say, to say yeah. you know, how, how you can, you know, kind of keep a positive spin on it. But there was one where he pointed out that these are great from a marketing point of view. But the one fear he had was was now being realized and that he points out that consumers aren't able to tell the difference between the sake that was being made before and the sake that's being made now so the, these gis there there is a time limit on this for for me in terms of the terroir argument if people are gonna there, there is actually no um logical leap really and um, there's no there's no certain thing that this GI should be synonymous with terroir but if that is what people are going to talk about they're, they're going to talk about this as one set there is a time limit on you know how long it's going to be before these GIs 
start, like you said, consistently producing aromas, flavors, profiles in the final sake. That's their job from the terroir side of this argument. They must do that. Otherwise, the argument is actually having a negative effect. It's fine to have them as GIs, but the, the terroir element of this comes out the window. Sight. And I don't think that's happening. And as John, point, John points out, they've had now GIs. These have been released GI sakis, and customers aren't noticing any difference. So I, I have to say that I think it would be in every brewery's interest to avoid that. Because I think one of the things that sake breweries struggle with is creating a character, right? Is, is showing how they, they are, in fact, different from other sake breweries. And if suddenly um, they stop that, if suddenly it's like, all right, we have to start being the same. We have to start, you know, expressing the, the local character in the same ways, then uh, it's, it's almost like working against the individual brewery's interests. I, um, I, there's actually something that sort of stands out to me as an argument of uh, against terroir in these GIs, and that I, you know, I, I bring up Hagi just because it's the GI with which I am most familiar. But there is a um, there's something that they do there in, in Hagi. They they grow Yamane Nishiki there. They mill it there, and then every year, one of the diff, one of the six breweries takes turns making. A sake under the same label, they call it Migaki Six, all right, because it's it's milled to sixty percent. And every year, a different brewery does this brew, right? So all of them are in the same GI. They're all using Yamada Nishiki grown in Hagi and milled in Hagi. And every year, it's a completely different sake. It like you would never ever ever. Can get confused is like, wait, is this is this Toyobi Jeans Migaki Six or is this Abo Notsuru's? Nope, nope, different. Every year the rice is going to be subtly different, but like the brewers have their own character, their own skill sets, their own ideas of the sake that they want to make, and that is what the sake is every year. And so, I think right there, to me is sort of the clearest indication that, that we're not even close to GI or terroir being a a, a, a a defining element of sake expression. Yeah, I, I would like to add to that as well, because the, the Harima GI, which is, like I said, the, the region where, where I live, they, they also, um, not that they, were, they weren't related, but I, I have to imagine that, the, that there was some connection there. There was a project in, in Harima called, it's, it's a bit of wordplay. So it's Hyo Go, but it's Hyo and then five. Uh -huh. Go Go is five in, uh, in, in Japanese. So it was Hyo Go Kura. And what, what they did is they, they actually, they took rice from one rice field, one particular plot of land, and then they gave it to, to five brewers. Now, we talked about the Tatsuriki experiment. I want to know if there was a common thread in those five sake, because you, when these kind of experiments go on, you normally, the, the terroir drum beats very loudly 
when that happens, everyone wants to talk about they found this, they found that. That's actually a much better experiment. And I never heard anyone from the terror camp talking about those five saki. Now, I wasn't able to try any of them, let alone all five, which is what you would need to do to see if there was a common thread. But if there's something unique to that rice field that's able to, you know, impart something noticeable in the sake, I'm willing to bet people would be clambering all over that and saying that's an example of terroir. But I haven't heard a peep. <laughs> so I have to assume if anyone of our listeners has tried them, please get in contact with us and tell us if that is like the smoking gun of terroir, because I don't understand how people weren't... That, that was surely a golden opportunity for proponents of terroir if something had, had um, been consistent throughout those five sake. What's more likely, I'm going to go out on a limb, is that they were all completely different. Same rice field, five different breweries, and I, I'm, I'm almost certain they'll all be completely different. There's also this this idea of like how different or how similar does it have to be, and, and that's I guess I don't know a matter of taste. Like I can't imagine a palate that could identify a rice source. Like I just I can't imagine the sort of the level of familiarity you would need to have with the entire range of rice growing regions in Japan to, 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 to be able to taste the difference between two different fields and know what those were, which is, which is what it seems to me terroir requires. Like, it seems to me that if, if it's going to be something that we are going to, to find it all useful, then that's what it was have. And I think maybe like, I think that's, that's maybe the big issue that I have, like the use of this term, like the practical, the practical advantages of, of having a, an identifiable terroir. So if, like, if we do that, and if we say, okay, yes, terroir is something that defines sake expression, does it exist? Like, how useful is it to have that? Yeah, this is, let's just get into this then, because that, that's a, a, a brilliant question and one that, that always plays on my mind when people talk about this is, you know, let, let's be honest, this was this was touted as the, the thing that was going to elevate sake and bring it into new markets, that the point in this, all of this, was to to build a bridge with these, these consumers, which allegedly are just going to go wild for sake because now it's got terroir and now they can relate to it and they can understand it better, you know, you've got the smartest people in the industry all over the place doing experiments and research and everything to try and, you know, establish something in Taiwan. So far, no one has come up with, with anything tangible. But we need to take a minute and stop and think, if it's that complicated, do we need it? Do we need terroir? Is this necessary? Are customers going to be better off hearing from someone serving them at a restaurant about how soil in some part of Japan that they're never going to have heard of, you know, talking about the soil content and how it increases acidity slightly and they've done experiments and stuff. Is that easier and more palatable 
to your average customer than something that people tell me all the time we shouldn't be talking about, which is brewing process. Is it really more complicated? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm asking that as a serious question. Well, I mean, I obviously think that no, like it, I, I get this, I get the same sort of sense when people talk about like names and like all oh, the Japanese names are too difficult to pronounce and we need to give them English names and because people just don't understand. And like, really? Like, really? They, they can't say Japanese names. They can't understand like, oh, yes, this, this sake was brewed with a traditional method, which increases the amount of lactic acid, which, you know, expresses itself as, you know, more lactic notes and, and, and a more robust flavor. Like, I, I don't think that the ideas conveyed by words are that difficult. Like, I just don't think that people are going to, to have a stretch. And I, and I have a sneaking suspicion that it's just a kind of pandering. Like, I think that there's, there is a, a distinct argument to be made that uh, it has to do with sort of this perceived cultural superiority of France. Like people want to use French words to talk about sake. They want to treat sake like wine because, you know, France is respected and I guess Japan isn't. And I, and it's, it's a, just, it's just, it's wrong in so many ways to do that because sake is not wine. It just isn't. And wine already exists. So why are you trying to, to sell sake like wine? If people want to buy wine, it's there. They know where it is. They, they can find it. Sell sake as sake. Yeah, sell it as itself. Yeah, I always wonder for whose benefit that this is for. You know, people say it's for it's for the consumer's benefit to make it easy to to understand. And um, I, I always try and drop a bombshell during every episode. And the, the the bombshell tonight is actually a personal one. I actually came from the wine world. I I have wine qualifications. I I worked in retail for for a year in wine. Now. I wouldn't say it was it was exclusively high end. There was there was a there was a great variety of different styles, but some of it was very high end, and we had high end clients as well. Um, it was a very um, it was very unpretentious retailer, but they the the the, the wine portfolio was um, some of it was very top end stuff. And I worked there for just under a year. This was a busy shop, and I worked on the floor, and we had tasting facilities and what have you on site. I cannot recall hand on heart ever being asked by a customer about the terroir of a particular wine. It just never happened. People are not interested in it. If they're asking for recommendations, they, they probably ask a recommendation because they were usually it was because of something they were going to eat that night, you know, a meal that we're preparing, or it was an event, or it was a present. You know, the, these were the determining factors. The people that were really into wine. They tended to talk about flavor profiles, that kind of thing. I never, I can never remember having, you know, deep conversations about the terroir of regions, which that, that's always lingered at the back of my mind is when people say we need terroir, who needs it? Is, is it really the consumers or is it the people that are new to the, the, to the sake industry that have a wine background? Is it is it more palatable for them or is it more palatable for the customer? Because if it's not more palatable for the customer, there's no point in this 
you know, like like you said, wine and sake are are not the same thing. They're completely different. And you know, I've always had the opinion that we need to be talking about things that are more appropriate to to sake and not pandering to a group that you know are almost insistent that we we kind of merge the two together in order to to promote them. I'll say it till I'm, till I'm blue in the face. I don't think that's a good strategy, um, but I, I, I also question whether it, it actually would get people to buy to buy sake outside of a very niche group who are highly trained from the wine world. I really think that they, they can't be any other thing. Like I just, you know, I, I come from a, a linguistic and philosophical background and, and I see that people insisting on talking about terroir are signaling, right? And and I and I mean that in a non-judgmental way. It's like they're they're just showing that yes, look, I know wine. And if you know wine too, then you should trust me when I say this sake is good. Like it's just a, a way of communicating in group membership. And as someone who is not in that group, to me, it sounds like a bunch of nonsense. It just sounds goofy. It, it strikes me as inappropriate. And like you said, it's pandering to a group that maybe doesn't need to be pandered to. Yeah. Uh, before, all right. So before this devolves any further into a rant, um, I, I, I kind of feel like we've come to the point where we can say, that as far as we're concerned, there, there is no deterministic terroir involved in sake. Sake is a process-driven drink in which the process is built around uh, adjusting and addressing natural influences. Um, I like to think of sake bring as about as natural as a bonsai, right? Like a bonsai is a tree. A tree is a natural thing. It's a plant that grows in the soil, but it certainly doesn't strike me as a particularly natural thing. It has been painstakingly shaped by the hand of a human being. What a brilliant analogy. <laughs> Thank you. It came to me on my walk this evening. Let's, let's finish there because that is the, the perfect finish, I think. So recommendations all it's, right uh, this, this is a challenging one <laughs> andy um you're gonna have to you're gonna have to give us the recommendation because yeah what what how do we how do we recommend a sake for this because if 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 terroir exists then we can recommend a sake that expresses terroir if it doesn't exist and it's just just a good sake so what do you what do you, what, what's your what's your take on on this recommendation well, I really thought about this and at first I was thinking, I was kind of going along that train of thought. I was thinking, well, who, who are the breweries that, that really claim to, um, to be making sake that expresses terroir? And I won't name names, but you actually look at them and you tend to find that they're, they're, they're actually, they don't have a very strong claim. The people that are the loudest about this tend to, to not have a very compelling certainly in my opinion, argument for expressing terroir in their sake. So I took a different track and the sake that I've come up with is Skinoi, which is made by actually a friend of mine, Ishikawa Toji. And we've talked several times about terroir and he has a very interesting theory on this. It isn't terroir and he doesn't, he doesn't use those words, but 
he, he has likened it to to a sort of something that could be deemed to be terroir and it really goes back to that traditional factor that we talked about before which seems to be the you know the strongest one or the one that you could at least get some life out of um, and it's also very similar to what John Gautner was was uh, mentioning in that talk that he did um, all those years ago. Ishikawa said that uh, Ishikawa Tozi says that when he moves brewery, he, he is going to get a different style of sake, and that's because of the environment. He uses the the word environment specifically, but what he's meaning is the environment of the brewers. That's him at the top, and then his team that he's assembled, and the, their machinery. Um, all the effects, the local rice, the, the water, all of these, you know, are elements in it as well. And it all kind of bundles together. And that, that is a really kind of, it's staring the obvious, I suppose, but it's it's also very, I think, very fitting description for, for his type of sake. He's very hands-on. And the specifically the sake that I want to recommend is uh, Nanotsuki, which was made with organic rice. It's Kimoto, which is his signature style. It's a very orthodox method of Kimoto. And it's only polished to, to 80%. And if again, if we're talking about tipping the balance between trying to tip the balance in terroir's favour, if we were to, to do that, you would have to really strip away a lot of the elements of the brewing process. And actually, Ishikawa Toji does a lot of that. He, he doesn't use um, temperature controls. He doesn't use cultured yeasts. And this, the rice that he uses tends to be very lightly polished. So it isn't terroir, but it's the closest thing that I could get to if I'm really kind of clutching at straws. Um, but it's also a fantastic sake. So, so yeah, Tsuki no Yi Nanotsuki is my slightly flawed recommendation for terroir and sake. Thank you very much. Right, so my recommendation is something that's actually going to go a little bit against the, the grain of the terroir argument. And I am choosing a Yamanashi sake. It's part of the, the Yamanashi GI area. Kai no Kaiun. And the particular one I, I'm choosing is uh, the Tokubetsu Jumai Namagenju. They call it Kakoi, which is, of course, uh, implying that it was uh, Fukurozuri. But it's such a big, rich, deep, complex drink that actually stood really far apart from all of the other Yamanashi sake I, I tried when I was up there. You know, it still uses that that the water <laughs> from the, the special GI area. And, and of course, you know, they're part of the project to sort of express those natural influences. But to me, like it, it really stood out as a, as a different kind of character from the other sake I saw that there. So yeah, Kai no Kaiun from Ide Jozo using water, spring water from Mount Fuji. Fantastic. All right. So, Andy, uh, I think that kind of finishes up for to for, for our, our episode today. Do you have a takeaway for us? I, I do. I mean, obviously, we, we've been quite uh, opinionated throughout this episode. So all I want to say is everyone is entitled to enjoy sake as they please. And, and that includes its study. But if you're, if you're asking, you know, my personal advice as a brewer, as a fellow fan of sake, and just a general admirer of this wonderful beverage, all I would say is don't waste your time on sake terroir. 
you know, life is short and there is a lot to learn about sake. It's not a simple drink to grasp. Concentrate on the important tangible things, production techniques, famous brewing regions, the history of its evolution, even regionality, you know, true regionality, although it is diminishing in its importance as the years go on, it's also a fascinating element and you'll learn a lot about sake by, by studying that. If you have any real aspirations to work in the industry or, or, or just simply want to learn about the, the, the true fundamentals, then your time is better spent elsewhere. I, I'm aware that I, we just mentioned about being opinionated and that is another opinion, but that is just my own personal advice. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Once again, sake is, is a product of the brew. All right, so that finishes us up for another Sake Deep Dive. I have been your host, Jim Ryan. Uh, you can find me usually on Twitter at J-I-M underscore D underscore R-I-O-N. And uh, Andy, how about yourself? Uh, you can find me on my website, www.originsake.com, or you can get me on Instagram, and there's links to my contact page and what have you on the website. Fantastic. Uh, remember to drink responsibly, stay safe out there, and uh, kanpai. Kanpai. Kanpai.